of Jerusalem, not Antioch further over in Turkey, Asia Minor, and all that. We're told in, uh, in chapter 15, the ver- first couple of verses, just to set the context, we're going to be starting in verse 11 again. Uh, it says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, uh, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's a bold statement. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute, it doesn't say that they had no small dissension or that they had no small dispute. It says both. <laughs> it means these guys were duking it out. They, this was definitely, I mean, not physically, of course, but I mean, this was definitely a major point of contention. Why? Talked about it last week, not going to belabor it again, but I will mention it. When you change either the person of Christ, who he was and is, or the work that he accomplished, what he did at that cross, you mess with that, you you trifle with it, you toy with that, you change the whole gospel. And that's exactly what was going on here. This turned into a watershed issue. This was not a minor thing. This was a defining moment for the early church. Uh, had it, it not gone the way that it did, Christianity would not exist in the way that we understand it today. It would have become a sect, an obscure sect of Judaism, because that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to roll Christianity into Judaism. And, and no, that's, that, that, that is round holes and square pegs. It doesn't fit. It's not an extension of Judaism. So, uh, because law and grace don't mix. I mean, <laughs> this, this wasn't there. This is, therefore, they, they had no small dissension and dispute with them. They determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them would go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So rather than us just sit here and argue about it, I, you know, let's take it to the guys that actually walked with Jesus the one, you know, his brother James is the he he had emerged as sort of the head of the church in Jerusalem, and then Peter as the the chief apostle. I mean, can't think of guys that have better experience and more firsthand knowledge of exactly what this thing is. So, we're going to Jerusalem. It says that they had certain others with them. One of the certain others was a guy by the name of Titus. He was a leader in the Antioch church. And they took him along. Now, to try to sort of round this out, I'm going to stitch this account together with what we see in Galatians chapter 2, the first five verses, because Paul, remember, on his, he and Barnabas' first missionary journey, they went to Galatia, all the churches in that region of Asia Minor, now Turkey, but they went from church to church to church. (laughs) <laughs> got run out of most of them, drug out of town at Lystra, left for dead. I mean, it wasn't a small and it wasn't an easy uh, undertaking. They had gone through these churches and then things started to go uh, awry because the Judaizers, these guys wanting to mix law and grace, would come in. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, that's fine. You're saved by grace, but you also need to be circumcised. Oh, yeah, you also need to keep the law of Moses. And Paul is going, look, we didn't risk our lives so that you could come and tell us that what we've been telling these people is not true. 
And, and I mean, <laughs> not on my watch. I can see, you know, he was hopping mad when he wrote the book of Galatians. So in Galatians chapter 2, Paul says after 14 years, and this is 14 years after his Damascus Road experience when he gave his life to Christ <laughs> and uh, that whole thing there. After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. That's the trip we read about in Acts chapter 15. And I went up by revelation. In other words, the, the Holy Spirit led me to defer this matter to the apostles, to the leaders in Jerusalem. I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I had preached among the Gentiles, but I did it privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means, and I love this, I had run, uh, I might run or had run in vain. So what Paul is saying, he goes and he meets privately with the leaders in Jerusalem, with Barnabas and Titus and the others that were with them. They meet privately at first because Paul is, he's questioning himself. Have you ever gotten involved in something and you kind of come back and you think, well, I think I got it right. I'm, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I was hearing from the Lord on this. But, you know, the Bible tells us there's safety or victory in a multitude of counselors. And I mean, that's one of my favorite proverbs. If I'm not sure about something, I want to go and I want to talk to godly men and women about it. I want to be able to bounce it off of others uh, that I'm, I'm reasonably secure in the fact that they're walking with the Lord. That's what's going on here. Paul's saying, you know, I think that I got this right, but I'm going to meet with these guys privately because I want to be sure that I got it right. I want to be sure that I wasn't running in vain, that I wasn't giving these people bad doctrine. And, and so in, in verse 3 he says, uh, Galatians 2, he says, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in uh, who came in by stealth to spy out the liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage. Interesting. To whom we did not yield submission for even an hour. And oh no, this was a strong dispute, as I mentioned. That the truth of the gospel might continue with you. He's saying, look, the word that we gave you was true. It was validated by the apostles and the leaders in Jerusalem. You can bank on it. This is, the, it's not law and grace. They are not, you can't put those together. Salvation is a gift. And now if you're going to hang the law of Moses on it, it's no longer a gift. And so you, you can't have both. Uh, Works-based righteousness, we'll talk about that in a bit. It just does not mix with the grace of God. So, as I mentioned, the Jerusalem Council, they met privately at first, and then they met publicly. They opened it up. Uh, Peter stands up, and he addresses the group, and he flatly states that, that compelling people to be circumcised to follow the law of Moses in light of the cross was tantamount to putting God to the test. He's saying, why do you put God to the test? And by putting a yoke of bondage on these people that neither we or our fathers were able to bear. It's, we couldn't, the law couldn't save anybody. The law of Moses, it could illustrate our lack, but it could never empower us to obey. So 
We ended last week with verse 11 of chapter 15, and that's where I want to pick it up uh, today because I love the way that Peter phrases his response to these things. Uh, he says in verse 11, he says, but, now but always refers to what's just been said. You're trying to put a yoke of bondage on people. We can't do it. And they couldn't do it. So not being able to keep the law is what he's saying here. He says, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. <laughs> Interesting. He goes right to grace for one thing, which is very important. We've got to understand that it's by the grace of God alone. The other thing I like about that is, is that notice that Peter doesn't say that they shall be saved in the same manner as we. <laughs> He's referring to the Jews. And this, I, I'll tell you folks, I just see this as being a great display of humility and grace because he tells his Messianic Jewish brothers, we Jews shall be saved in the same manner as they, the Gentiles. In other words, the Jews had, they were known for being arrogant and haughty about, you know, we have the oracles of God entrusted to us. And you Gentiles, pretty much lower human beings. That was the attitude of their hearts. They looked at themselves as we've got the exclusive rights to God. When God's purpose all along was that the Jews would be a light unto the Gentile nations, that they would be the ones that would draw the Gentiles in. Didn't happen that way. So again, we see now Peter himself saying, look, we get to, we get to be saved. We get to have salvation the same way as the Gentiles do. Uh, and I just think it's great the way that he says that. Verse 12, then all the multitude, so it's a larger group now, not just the leaders, they kept silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. So uh, they're opening it up. There's a larger group. Of, you know, when you see multitude, that doesn't necessarily mean tens of thousands. It means that there was a large group. So... Uh, there's a larger group there. And, and notice that Barnabas, Barnabas and Paul's names here in verse 12, that they've been switched back. Remember, we talked about all the way up through when they began their missionary journey, it was Barnabas and Paul. And then they got on the island of Cyprus and they were there with Elimus and you know, the, the sorcerer, sorcerer guy and, and all that. Uh, and, and when Paul emerged as the leader, it became Barnabas or Paul and Barnabas. Well, here, Luke switches back because now they're in front of a Jewish audience again, a largely Messianic Jewish audience. And Barnabas, remember, he was a Levite. And, and if you understand what the Levitical priesthood was in Israel, those were the guys that, that carried out the duties in the temple, carried out the duties prior to that in the tabernacle, that, for instance, on the Day of Atonement, once a year, they would, the high priest, who was a Levite, would go in behind the veil, all of that. Not, I, boy, I could rabbit trail right now on that, but I'm not going to. My point is, is that Barnabas would be the guy that would say, look, we need to do this according to the law of Moses, because he was specifically trained to do it. But he doesn't do it here. Um, <laughs> he, he and the Apostle Paul, they went on to share the miraculous works that God had done by the Holy Spirit at their hands. In other words, it wasn't them doing it. 
It was the Holy Spirit using them, working through them, manifesting signs and wonders through them as they dealt with these people across the the region that they had been to. And now they're sharing with the, the crowd in Jerusalem. But I want to I want to pause for a minute and just remind you that signs and wonders and miracles <laughs> they're there to attest to, to validate the message of the gospel. And that's always what they do. Supernatural manifestations were never intended then or now to put on some sort of Holy Ghost show. You see a lot of that out there. And it's, that's just not it. It's not there to put on a show. Look at me. Look at the razzle-dazzle that I can produce. No, it was always to attest to the validity of the person and the work of Christ. Now, Jesus himself, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 5 through 7, he says this. He says, For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say arise and walk? In other words, which one is easier? And he's asking the religious leaders because they were scoffing at him <laughs> once again. But in verse 6, he said, and this is important, he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. In other words, Jesus himself is saying, look, the signs and the wonders are to demonstrate that I have the ability to save your soul, that I have the ability to forgive your sins. Because only God could do both. It, when it's a genuine, a bona fide miracle, a bona fide sign, or when, where he bends the laws of physics, I love telling people, yeah, it's a big deal for us because you know, we look at the physical world. For God, I mean, he kind of like owns the laws of physics. He can bend them whenever he wants. And, and yeah, it causes us to wonder, as we, we've talked about, the signs are there to point to something. The wonders are things that get us to scratch our head and wonder what's going on here. That's what they're for. They're to point us to the work in the person of Christ. In verse 13, back here in, in Acts uh, 15, it says, And after they, and speaking of Barnabas and Paul, had become silent, James, now Jesus' brother. Now, remember James and John, James, the son of Zebedee, that he was assassinated. He was executed back, I think it's in chapter 12, uh, when Herod came onto the scene and, and had him beheaded. So we can deduce that this is the James that had emerged as the leader of the Jerusalem church, who is actually Jesus's half-brother. I mean, mother, you know, is the same mother. <laughs> and yet, yeah, again, I, well, I could rabbit trail on that for this time of year. The point is, is that James uh, steps up here and he says, men and brethren, listen to me. So uh, using the authority that God had given him as the head of the Jerusalem church. Now remember, Peter's the chief apostle. James is the leader of the church. Uh, in verse 14, he says, Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. Now he uses Simon, that, that is Peter's Aramaic or Hebrew name. That was the one that he was commonly known among the Jews as. His Gentile name was Petros, Peter. Uh, it says in verse 15, And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Uh, 
So he recalls now how he had been the one initially called to announce the gospel to the Gentiles. Peter talked about that earlier on uh, in this chapter, about how he was the one that was appointed by Cor- by God to go and to, to see Cornelius when he had the vision, the sheet that came down. And God said, don't you call common what I have declared holy. And what he was talking about was not food. He was talking about the Gentiles. He was talking about the gospel now being extended to the Gentiles. So um, James makes reference to that. Uh, and then he reaches back, interesting, he reaches back to the prophet Amos. How many of you read the book of Amos lately? <laughs> but he reaches back to demonstrate that the Gentiles had always had a seat at God's table, period. That was always God's intention. Uh, and and he, he does that using the Jews' own prophetic literature. He reaches back into the Old Testament. Verse 16, this is what he has to say. Now he loosely quotes Amos. One distinction is that when he talks about mankind here, in the original it talks about Edom. You guys know who the Edom, Edomites were? They were Gentiles. <laughs> so when he's talking about this, he's talking. he's making reference to the Gentiles being added in. He says, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. Now, what James is doing here, he's using this text because it asserts that the new covenant is radically different in major ways, in three ways, than the old. And and again, it was foreshadowed, it was prophesied back, way back in the days of old. Uh, the first is we see here that the new covenant is grace-based. And that's the point of this whole Jerusalem council. Is it grace or is it law? Uh, and it's not performance-based. It's a gift. It's not based on your merit on, you know, how many times you walked the little ladies across the street or how often you kept the law of Moses or how you did this or you did that. It's not based on that. We'll talk about that more as we go along. The other thing that's true about the new covenant where it differs, vastly differs from the law of Moses is the law of Moses was temple-focused. The new covenant is Messiah-focused. Why? Because Jesus himself is our temple. He is the one. He says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And, and the leaders standing around, the guys standing around listening to him when he said that, they, they thought he was talking about Herod's temple. They said, it's taken 46 years to build this. You're going to put it back together in three days? They didn't get that he was talking about himself being the temple, the tabernacle of God. The Gospel of John says that Jesus came and tabernacled among men. The third thing we see here is that the new covenant is worldwide in scope. In other words, it's not focused just on the Jewish race. The doors have now been opened. Uh, we were praying this morning and somebody prayed about the, the veil being torn. When Jesus hung on that cross and, and we're told that the veil was torn, the veil to the temple that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies. 
the most holy place where the presence of God dwelt. And the veil, that curtain was torn from the top down, signifying now that man has full-blown access to God. Didn't matter if you're a Jew, didn't matter if you're a Gentile. What mattered is if you had come to believe, period. So it's worldwide in scope. It's not just focused on the Jews. As these things became known, the hardline Jewish leaders wrestled. I've mentioned before, they just plain wrestled with these things. They did not like the fact that God had, they didn't like his choice of Messiah, this hick from Galilee. And I'm not trying to be irreverent. I mean, that's the people in the South, or they looked at the people in Galilee as being, uh, yeah, you know, kind of the lower class people in the country. We're the white collar and they're the blue collar guys and all that. They didn't like God's choice of Messiah. And they did not like his method of salvation. You mean, I, I've lived all my life as some pagan, heathen, <laughs> Gentile out there doing my own thing. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. And now by simply coming to faith, I can have a relationship with God? When the Jew, I mean, from the time that he was a little boy or a, or a little girl, that they were taught and trained and grilled and, and they had strict adherence to the law of Moses and their interpretations of the law of Moses, a lot of the traditions, Jesus never violated the law. He violated their traditions <laughs> and they didn't like it. So these guys, they, with their rigid religious approach to the things of God, they wrestled. And that's why they came after them. Well, why they, these guys came from Jerusalem, went up to Antioch and began to disturb the people there. So James talking here, he says in verse 18, known to God from all eternity are all his works. His point is, is the Gentiles were always included in God's plan. They always were. So now James, beginning in verse 19, he announces his conclusion in the matter. And folks, just take this in. This is a brilliant plan that, that the Holy Spirit leads James in as far as what they do with this question that Paul and Barnabas and Titus and the others have come and asked them about. Because we know, I mean, we've read and looked at from in the text up until now, that it's not about law. It's not about rule keeping. It's not about that, but it is about something. And James says what it is. He says uh, in verse 19, therefore, uh, again, when you see therefore, what does it mean? What's it there for? It means in light of these things, in light of the things we're discussing, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. That seems kind of odd to you. Remember now, in the law of Moses, uh, these were big deals. The, you, you, didn't, you did not eat an animal that had not had the blood drained out. Uh, and the way that that was done was by slitting the throat of the animal. I mean, this is right out of Leviticus. And, and what he's saying is, obviously, sexual immorality is not a thing. Yeah, we understand that. 
But why is he doing this? Is he giving them now a new list of rules? Think about it. Would they be condemning the ideas of those who advocate law and then place another yoke of bondage on the Gentiles? The answer is no. Look at the difference in the way that it is presented. The Jews came from Jerusalem. They said, you must be circumcised or you're not saved. Period. End of story. James says, let's not annoy the Gentiles. And that's what that word means <laughs> when he says, uh, let's not trouble them. Let's not annoy the Gentiles uh, with this nonsense for, as pertaining to salvation. Remember, we've talked about salvation is, is, is what happens when you are justified before God. Okay, now we are justified by faith alone. The, the Bible's clear. The New Testament is clear on that. So when he's saying, he's talking about these are not issues to salvation. They're not pertinent to salvation. Are they important? Yeah, they're important. They were important in their culture. Because to both Jews and Gentiles, these, you got to remember, these are two very, very different cultures in their day. And now having been justified by faith solely by the grace of God, not by works, not by law, not by circumcision, none of that, that they need to still, they need to come together in unity. They need to be able to come together under one roof. I marvel that we can come from so many different walks of life, have so many different points of emphasis and so many different interests and all of that, that we can come together as one body and actually enjoy being around each other. It's wonderful how the body of Christ functions in that way. So what he's saying here is he's saying, here's some recommendations that you all can agree upon because the Jews had the law. Remember too that the, the law is, it's an expression of God's heart. It's not inherently bad in any way. It's, it's simply cannot save someone. And for them to assert that you had to obey the law in order to have salvation was patently false. It was completely wrong. So, Understand the difference in the cultures. The Jews understood idolatry, condemned in the Old Covenant. (laughs) The Gentiles, for them, the norm was idol worship prior to Christ. They were, that was part of their culture. The Jews understand, they understood sexual immorality. The Gentiles celebrated it in their day. Does this sound familiar, by the way? In our day as well. The Jews had dietary laws. The Gentiles had no such thing. Gentile Christians had the ability to eat meat sacrificed to idols, to continue their aberrant marriage practices, to eat food without a kosher bleeding. And that's what he's talking about when he talks about things strangled and abstain from things strangled and, and from blood. That, that's all that has to do with kosher stuff. That's a very Jewish thing. He's not talking about us. Yeah, I'm not going to go order a steak and ask if it was strangled or bled. That's just not part of our culture. But it was for them. Read First Corinthians chapter 8. Read the whole chapter if you want. If you want to have clear understanding, we'll touch on it a little bit towards the end of our time. But a, a very just a wonderful treatment on what it is to understand that we don't put a stumbling block in another's way. The point here is they were being encouraged to lay down their rights in those matters as a display of love to their Jewish brethren. Remember, 
they're talking about the Gentiles here. They were a law unto themselves, Paul tells us in the book of Romans, that, that they, they didn't have the same background or constraints or, or training or any of that that the Jews who had converted to Christianity did. So they're not saying, look, this, here's a new list of rules. Again, sexual immorality accepted because that is clearly condemned in the new covenant as well as the old. But these other things were, they were things that it would really interrupt their fellowship if the Gentiles wanted to just go barging through and do as they wanted. And so what they're trying to do is promote unity in the body. They're not making a new list of rules. None of these were conditions to salvation. None of them. Folks, it's not, it's not clean up your act and then come to God. Immoral lifestyle or not. It's come as you are. And let God begin a new work, a fresh work in your heart. And let him begin to clean your life up from the inside out. So I'll guarantee you, if I can talk you into changing somehow, somebody else can talk you out of it. But when God does the work, when the Holy Spirit does the work, when now the response of my heart to having been justified by faith as a free gift. Now, having been justified, what do I want to do? I want to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit as I'm now being sanctified, as I'm now being cleansed. That's the work that God wants to do. And people get those messed up. Understand your theology, folks, to be sanctified, is, is is what it is to come before God and and it's a gift that we're sanctified by faith. We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ the moment we believe. And then he begins to do this beautiful work. Being justified is a gift. The outworkings of that is being made holy. The outworking of the work that God wants to do now that I'm a cleansed vessel, the Holy Spirit moves in, begins now to operate in my life. Then things like immorality, things like not wanting to have a put a stumbling block in somebody else's way, things like making sure that I'm operating in love instead of uh, whatever I can get out of the thing. The fruit of the Spirit begins to manifest. All of these, uh, all four of these are laid down in the law of Moses in Leviticus 17 and 18. But again, it's not because he's trying to put them back under the law. What he's saying is that in order for you to have fellowship together, Jew and Gentile alike, that you need to strive for unity. Verse 21, for Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So these guidelines were directed at both Jewish sensitivities and pagan worship excesses, I guess you could call it. And the aim, again, was unity and love between Jewish and Gentile Christians and not freedom at the expense of it. Well, I can do what I want. I have, I'm saved by grace. That's not the point. Verse 22, Then it pleased the apostles and the elders and the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who is also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. So the Jewish leaders now, 
they send chosen men who would be witnesses to confirm two things. Number one, the findings of the council. You know, what the, they had gone there specifically, gone down to Jerusalem. Uh, they call it going up because Jerusalem's up in the mountains. But they'd gone to Jerusalem from Antioch. And, and now they've spoken with the elders, with the, the apostles and, and with the leaders at the church. They've gotten this information. And what the leaders say is, look, we're going to send some guys with you, but we're also going to write a letter. And we'll get to that in a second. But we, we're going to have these guys verbally confirm the findings of the council. And they're going to give you our recommended course of action. Uh, verse 23, they wrote this letter by them. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren. To the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. So, who it's to and who it's from. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law. <laughs> I like this. To whom we gave no such commandment. Because the guys, remember at the beginning of chapter 15, it says they came from Jerusalem. We looked at that when we started this morning. And they came as though they were kind of a big deal from Jerusalem. And the guys in Jerusalem were saying, no, 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 no. They weren't bringing a message from us. That wasn't something that we did. It said that we gave no such commandment and it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord. In other words, we're together on this to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. In in case you're wondering where our affections lie, where our (laughs) allegiance lies, Paul and Barnabas are beloved by us. Not only that, they are men who risk their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, just as a side note, I was thinking about this as I was preparing. In the same way that I'm glad that the Corinthian church was sort of a party down church, not that it validated what they were doing, but when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he wrote this huge letter of correction because if if you could get it wrong, the Corinthians were getting it wrong. But it gives us such great instruction for us to glean from things not to do, roads not to go down. In the same way, these guys coming from Jerusalem and trying to spread this false doctrine, which was a big deal, as I mentioned, had they not done that, this this would not have had to have been addressed in such a straightforward and clear manner. Because folks, legalism is real. And there are those out there today who would subject you to a yoke of bondage and try to put you under some deal to where it's, it's grace plus. And not, not, not here, not now, not ever, because it's by the grace of God alone. As I mentioned, it is Jesus plus nothing. You, you gotta have that understanding. And if you're ever in a church environment where people start to add things or they start coming up with goofy things. I, I went to a church right out of Bible college. I went to a little Pentecostal church in Southern Cal. And I was sitting there. Well, I went once. Um, <laughs> and this guy said, I have a conviction against the martial arts. And I went, where'd that come from? And then he said, Amen. <laughs> and, 
And, and all the people in the audience went, amen. And, and I whispered to the person that I was there with, I said, you know, that guy just biased every person in here against somebody that might enjoy the martial arts. He just put a yoke of bondage on people. And, and that's exactly what was being done. That was a very legalistic approach. I went to Bible college with one couple. It was a married couple. They were from Syracuse, New York. And their dream, their call on their life, they were so excited. They were going to go back and start a Christian dojo in Syracuse. I don't know if they ever did or not. I lost contact with them. But my point is, is even things like that, even things that don't sound that important can become very important when somebody is putting a yoke of bondage on you. Throw it off. Don't stand for it. They said, we didn't send these guys to come to Antioch and trouble you. Paul and Barnabas had indeed risked their lives for the work that they've been called to. Uh, And so for men to come and to undermine that work really was unthinkable. Uh, That's why the strength of their response from the get-go was, (laughs) as we saw in verse 2, there was no small dissension, no small dispute with them. Verse 27, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas who will also report the same things by word of mouth. So the leaders in Jerusalem, they want to ensure that this was not just Paul and Barnabas's idea. First, they're building Paul and Barnabas up. They're saying, look, they're beloved by us, but don't just take their word for it. We're sending some other guys that are leaders in the church here. They're well respected. And we want you to understand that they're going to corroborate the message that we're sending. And they're going to they're gonna validate the letter that we're sending along with. Uh, so, to, uh, very wise. They, did, they couldn't, you know, in those days, they couldn't pick up. There have been times where I picked up the phone. Uh, just because I might have my antennas up about someone, and, and, and it's happened, it happens. And it's not like I, I'm not investigating all of you, don't worry. <laughs> But there have been times where I picked up the phone and I thought, you know, I really want to find out what this person's background is because I've got to check in my spirit. And, and usually that check bears out as, well, yeah, gee, they thrashed the last church they were in and, you know, there, there was some real trouble or uh, critical spirit, whatever it is. Well, these guys couldn't do that. They couldn't just pick up the phone. They couldn't just say, hey, can I see, you know, is this person like, you know, all that they say they are and all of that? They couldn't do it. So they sent people with them. Paul talks about sending letters in 2 Corinthians. He says, we sent letters with some of these guys. We wanted you to know. And that's what they're doing here. So in verse 28, says, he says, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit And to us, I like the way that that's rendered. The Holy Spirit was the one that initiated this and we put our hands to it because we believed that that was what was going on to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Now, the word necessary there means indispensable things. In other words, this is important stuff. We're not making laws for you. We're not making rules. We're certainly not tying this to salvation. But this is important, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. Things that the Gentiles, again, being a law unto themselves, 
And they're writing this to a Gentile church. Antioch is in Gentile, very solidly in Gentile territory. It's up in Syria, what modern day Syria. Uh, and they're saying that if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. And then they, they sign up, farewell. And we'll get to what happens next, next, well, in two weeks. Uh, because things start going sideways between Paul and Barnabas at this point. Uh, great story there. But here, what they're doing is stating their necessity. The Holy Spirit uh, is implementing common recommendations in light of vastly different cultures. Again, that's the context. Don't move away from that. I have heard really weird interpretations of this, but if you understand... Folks, when I teach, I like to use four different contexts. I use the the, the cultural context. The, that's why we're not requiring women to wear bonnets. <laughs> the cultural context was for then. That's not something we bring forward for now. Then there's the, the historic context, understanding where Israel is in history, being a, a, a nation dominated by a foreign power and, and stuff going on there. I also look at the textual context. What is the original? And, I, and again, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I, I reasonable use of a lexicon. And then I look at the contextual context. And the context here is all important. They're writing to a Gentile church. And they're saying, look, there's a lot of Jews mixed in with you guys. You're going to have to figure this out. Now, let me give you some recommendations on how to figure this out. No, that is not stuff that is pertinent to salvation. However, it is important. It's really important that you understand that unity comes before your own preferences. And that applies to us. We can get hung up. We can get hung up on all kinds of weird things. Yeah, maybe we're not talking about having a conviction about having a dojo. But we can still get hung up on differences. Great guidelines uh, coming up here as we wrap up this morning. In applying this, three things I want to look at. Uh, because uh, as a result, they would maintain unity in their fellowships. But they would also foster evangelism efforts to both Jewish and Gentile communities alike. Uh, because if you had a bunch of Gentiles running around you know, doing what Gentiles did... That'd be a horrible witness to the Jews. If you had a bunch of Jews running around saying, well, gee, you know, I've got the law of Moses and you don't, so neener, neener. <laughs> Probably wouldn't say that. But, but my point is, is, see how these can become points of division? They can be, become points of conflict. And, and it, just in a brilliant way, again, the apostles, the leaders in Jerusalem, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, come up with this plan to actually glue these people's lives together rather than see them be blown apart. Awesome. So by way of application, the first thing is this. It's critically important to understand the difference between issues unto salvation, again, justification, and issues as a result of salvation, sanctification. I'm going to give you an easy way to differentiate. I know those are big theological words, but they're super important. If you want to be grounded biblically, you need to understand what justification is, just as if I'd never sinned, and what sanctification is, being made holy. That's what that means. So the, the easy w- way to look at this is justification is essentially 
God loves me. Okay? Here's uh, something that Paul wrote to Titus, the same guy that was there in Jerusalem with uh, he and Barnabas. He wrote to Titus later. In Titus chapter 3, he says, But when the kindness and the love of God, there you go, God loves me, our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done. He's very clear on that. But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. How was I saved? How am I justified? Because God loves me. And he does and he wants to have a relationship with me. He wants to draw me into fellowship with him. Sanctification, on the other hand, is I love God. I love him. Peter, been looking at him this morning. By the way, Peter here in the book of Acts, he disappears off the scene. He's still very active, but this is the last mention of Peter that we see in the book of Acts. But he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, Therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, and then he puts a condition on it, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So if you love God, if you belong to him, if you have been justified, now, the, the right response of a healthy Christian is to want to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit. I want now to be sanctified. I want to, be, I want to be, have my life conformed to the image of Christ. And that process will go on for the rest of your days. We never arrive. That's silliness. We've got this old flesh that we drag around with us. And yet, if we've tasted that the Lord is gracious, the response of our heart is we want to lay aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, evil speaking. That's the desire of our hearts. It's, it's the, the way of a healthy believer. It doesn't stop. God doesn't save us and throw us in a bin that says heaven bound. He saves us and then he allows us to face things every day. I got up this morning, I could literally could not walk. <laughs> I wasn't happy about it. My wife would probably tell you. I wasn't real happy. I was like, oh man. But we face things. We go through things. She started praying and I started feeling better and more cooperative. <laughs> Off we went. <laughs> My point is, he is sanctifying us. It's a response to his grace. It's never a means towards it. And what he's saying here is get, stay away from the blood and the strangling and the, the, the immorality, all that stuff as a response to his grace. That is, that is not a means towards getting his favor. His favor comes because he is a loving God and he chooses grace. Second thing, as I mentioned, well, I've never asked whether an animal was strangled while I'm ordering a steak dinner. There is relevant biblical instruction which pertains to not being a stumbling block to others. Uh, and, and that's why the apostles put this forth to the Gentiles. They didn't, have, they didn't care about dietary laws. <laughs> dietary, what, what dietary law? In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, um, verse 9, says, Beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. He goes on to talk about meat sacrificed to idols in a pagan temple. All right? We don't worry about meat sacrificed to idols in a pagan temple. 
But the principle stands. And it's important. He's saying, you know, if anybody sees you and and they have knowledge uh, eating in an idol's temple, uh, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? In other words, he's going to violate his own conscience. and, And that's reckless of you. He says in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 8, But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. That's important. Now, here's one that, that's in our day. Consuming alcohol. The Bible doesn't say don't drink. Now, countless lives down through the ages have been wrecked. Uh, including my parents. I was raised in an alcoholic home and I don't wish that on anybody. It was horrible. My point is, you're not going to hear me in the pulpit say, you better not be drinking. But what he's saying here, and what he says in Romans chapter 14, is if that's something you choose to do, don't you go offending somebody else. Do you want to see your brother or your sister back in rehab because they thought that was okay because they saw you doing it? No, you don't want to do that. The law of love is higher be careful with your liberty is what he's saying. And, and if that's the case, he says, Paul says in, in Romans, and he says here in 1 Corinthians 8, he said, if it, he said, I'll never eat meat again if that's the risk that I run. If I'm going to put a stumbling block in a brother's or a sister's way, I would just as soon not. So folks, be careful with your liberty. Are we called to liberty? Yeah, we have liberty. Uh, you know, I, and I, I was in a, a legalistic church, a fellowship one time where that guy tried everything to make a law against alcohol, having a glass of wine or whatever it was. And, and there have been times in my own life where I would love to be able to make a rule. But it goes against what God has done in living in a grace-filled manner, which is not only receiving his grace for my own life, but extending grace in a sensitive manner to others. That's the key. So to sum up, on one side of the spectrum is license. I can do what I want. The other side of the spectrum is legalism. I can't do anything. (laughs) In the middle is liberty. How does that manifest? I I went on a website. This is a website called Got Questions, and I, I do recommend that website. There are a few websites I recommend. This is a really good one, and we'll wrap up with this. Uh, Talking about freedom as a Christian, not being a stumbling block. God questions, this is what they said. Refraining from being a stumbling block means not leading another into sin. How we accomplish this depends on the situation and the hearts of those around us. It's not one size fits all. People have different sensitivities. Like I said, Gentiles didn't care about dietary laws. The Jews did. So how do you deal with that? The security we have in God's love and provision, both now and eternally, allows us to show concern to those who are weaker, those who need specific encouragement to understand who God is. In some situations, that means living in those freedoms to exemplify that God is a God of grace. In other words, it means disciplining our, in others, it means disciplining ourselves to building up weaker believers and not pushing them into a liberty that they're not ready for. But always, and here's the point, 
It means not encouraging another to act in a way the Bible specifically identifies as sin. This is just a brilliant, uh, the way that Luke has brought these things together with the problem that came up at the Antioch church is brilliant because it satisfies the need to know that we walk in grace and we're not bound by the law but it also satisfies the need to know that we have responsibility in that grace because we do. Freedom comes with responsibility and it's not freedom to do whatever I want. I'm not free to go into a crowded theater and yell fire. I mean, I love that old saying, but I am free. Uh, Paul says in another place, he says, don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. That's it. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for this vital instruction from your word this morning. Vital insofar as we, I know I do, and I I believe my brothers and sisters here, we need to be reminded, Lord, that, that you are a God of grace, that you are a God who pours out mercy on our lives and, and that you do love us without condition. And Lord, that in receiving your love, there's something, there's a way for us to respond that's right in your eyes. And that's to respond lovingly to those around us, uh, to not put a yoke of bondage on people, but also, Lord, to not live so licentiously that we give the wrong impression that uh, sin is not important to you because we know it is. So I pray, Lord, for balance. I pray that you would through the instruction of your word this morning, that you would shore up our desire to not be a stumbling block to others, but also to be a beacon of your grace and your mercy and your love to a screwed up, messed up, upside down world. Give us insight, give us wisdom, give us balance, give us understanding in these things, Lord. We thank you for it. We praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.